Welcome to the Royal Shakespeare Company. Welcome to Interval Drinks, a podcast by the Royal Shakespeare Company in which we talk to artists who inspire us. Opening a show, it's just the sort of terror of, is this conceivable? I can remember a sequence of words in front of other humans. I can remember what to do. I can not fall over. It just might not be actually possible. Theatre is like Power Rangers. It's like when all the Power Rangers come together and make one big Power Ranger. Because it's great and people will have a great time and people deserve to have a great time, damn it. <laughs> have you collected your drinks? Then let's begin. Catching up in the interval this week, director Aaron Parsons with fellow director Tinika Craig. Hello everyone and welcome to Interval Drinks, the Royal Shakespeare Company's podcast where members of the current RSC company talk with artists who have inspired them. My name's Aaron Parsons and I'm currently the Associate Director and Movement Associate on Henry VI Rebellion and Wars of the Roses. And today I'm so excited to be joined by Tinika Craig, a director who won the prestigious Genesis Future Directors Award in 2014, directing Dirty Butterfly by the incredible Debbie Tucker Green. She's the current Bailey's Director at the Old Vic in London, as well as being the Artistic Associate of the Lyric and Hammersmith and Associate for the National Youth Theatre of Great Britain. She has directed a wide range of work, most recently including a production of Hamlet for young audiences at the National, Sarah Kane's Crave, the Lyric Hammersmith's pantomime Cinderella, a new translation of Vassa by Mike Bartlett, and the musical of one of my favourite books, The Colour Purple. Before all of this, she was an assistant director at the RSC, which is where I first met her, and heard her talk about her experience as an assistant. Tinika, it's so lovely to have you on the podcast. Welcome. What a nice intro. That was that was very... I don't think that's ever happened to me before. So the podcast is called Interval Drinks. Um, so uh, we should start things off properly by asking, what are you drinking? Right now or at the actual interval in at, our minds? At the in actual the interval, interval in our minds. The beautiful yeah. palace intervals of our minds. Um, let's say it's quite a fun show, in which case I'm having a gin and tonic, please. Very good, very, very good. I would have to go with rosé wine. It's been the thing that I have been embracing. Is it classy? Mm -hmm. Is rosé classy? I think it is classy. It's classy, it's fun, you know, doesn't take itself too seriously. It's cool, I like it. I mean, I don't like it because I'm allergic to wine, which is very sad, but I like it for other people. Yeah, how rubbish is that? It's really rubbish, yeah. Especially in the theatre, because like, if you work in theatre, like sometimes you do get free wine and I can't have it. Gutted. Anyway, I'm thrilled for you. <laughs> <Sure what I'm laughs> Just keep it away from you. <laughs> so for me, intervals are really interesting. Like, I love being part of them if I'm in the audience. But yeah. as a director, yeah. how do you find intervals? Oh, they're just awful as a director, I think. Well, it depends, actually. It depends on the show. Um, like in previews, they feel like slight hellscapes don't they because you're like frantically making all these notes and there are all these people just watching your show uh, against your will sometimes <laughs> like sometimes you're like you're not really ready um and there are all these people watching it and you're trying to like gauge their reactions but also use the interval for its intended purpose which is to like have a break and reset before you go back in mm-hmm. but you kind of can't do that because you're like trying to listen to people in the toilets to see if they're talking about the show which of course they're not because they've got their own lives and not that <laughs> you know there's, there's other stuff for them to talk about but it feels like a bit of an out-of-body experience doesn't it because you're sort of people are just having a lovely time and you're sort of just walking through mm-hmm. with a kind of thousand yard stare and a completely different 
existence. That said, once the show's opened or towards the end of previews and if it's a show that you're happy with, then they're quite fun because you're just like, look at all these people enjoying a thing that we made, which is, you know, that's lovely. Yeah, I completely agree. I think also the toilets for me are the worst. Yeah, you've got to queue lose. And sometimes you get the drink before you queue, rookie yeah. mistake. And then you're yeah. in the queue with the drink and you're like, now what? Am I going to just wee next to my drink? That's gross. So then you think, can I leave it with somebody? You want to put it on the... F- yeah, it's a whole... Yeah, I agree. I like to be incognito if it's my show. So yeah. like being yeah. amongst everyone is really nice. Do you find... Have you got a good strategy for like hiding the fact that you're taking notes? Because I feel like I'll have my notebook and someone will invariably ask me like, oh, are you studying the show? Or whatever, and then you have to be like, no, I, I worked on it, and then they go, oh, what did you do on it? And then you have to tell them that you're the director. Like, I've never, I've never found a way of because that's that's what gives you away, isn't it? It's the, yeah. it's the notebook and the concerned expression. <laughs> so it'd be lovely to talk to you a little bit about your career as well, because obviously I was aware of you very early on. Um, and it's been nice to sort of see where you've gone and what it feels like you've managed to do is. Um, not get put into a box that a lot of directors do by being the person that directs this sort of work. It feels like actually what's so lovely about your your spectrum of work, your body of work, is that you've managed to stay unboxed. Um, and, and I'd love to hear a little bit about uh, how you go about choosing work and, and what drives you creatively. Yeah, that's nice, unboxed. I like that. I think that's probably true. I kind of often kind of dance between these two notions of like, you know, sometimes you'll get asked a question, why this play? Why you? Why now? Like these important, where the questions, what are you doing it for? What does it, what does it mean? Um, and I do have answers to all those questions, but actually like, I just really like it. I find it really fun. I'm relatively good mm. at it. People let me do it and I really like it. So that's, that's, that's sort of what actually drives me in a kind of animal, just sort of lizard brain way. But, more kind of like poetically I think I I really like the act of like gathering people up together um the company and then the audience and being like we're just going to go on a little mission together and I think part of the reason that my work has ended up being quite varied is I don't necessarily mind what that thing is as long as we're providing a service that is an experience and that experience might be that we want everyone to be jumping up and down and dancing in the aisles and just having a good night out and shaking off some of the, you know, heinous stress of this hellscape that we live in. And other times it might be like, I really want people to look inside themselves and consider the way that they treat this group of people or, or, or whatever. But it, it, either way, what drives me is the idea that you could gather people in a room and shift that room in some way. That feels kind of cool. Just doing something with them. That feels like an exciting thing to be able to do. Um, I feel like more and more in terms of why I make work and what I, what I like, and I really had this like real revelation just doing the Hamlet I've just done was that actually I think my sort of inner director beyond anything else is just like you know that bit in Gladiator where he's just like are you not entertained (laughs) like that's like the absolute soul of anything I've ever made is this like getting Mm -hmm. chemicals to move about in your brain in a good way because if it's not I don't want to do it actually I really hear that idea of because with Hamlet young audiences first of all tough because young audiences are honest in a way that you know there's not a British politeness that they have yet. Yeah, they will tell you in lots of ways about what they feel about your work. So, yeah, I think, you know, as directors, it's really easy to um, get caught in the creative process and forget who it's for. 
So I really hear that in your answer, that there's something about mm-hmm. Well, mm-hmm. who are we making it for and what are we trying to do with it, which feels so important. And particularly with a lot of the work that you've done, which, you know, there's so much trauma in some of the plays that you've chosen that must be in your head about how you how you take that into the the work and how you take that to that audience. Yeah. And like, why? I think as well, like there's something of like, why is it worth bringing people together for them to experience this deeply traumatizing thing or to kind of, or like, or just to kind of like witness this really traumatizing thing. And sometimes that's what it is, right? Like sometimes it's the audience that get traumatized, but more often it's actually just an audience witnessing trauma. And that's quite, it's not always a point to that. You've got to be really careful as to why you want to do that to people. Yeah. It's about what are you going to do to an audience? Why are you going to do it? Who is it for? Who's it for? And who's actually going to see it? Who's actually realistically going to see it? And then when you know who you've got, how are you going to gather them yeah. together and make it worth their while one way or another? Yeah, you want to just make it worth people's yeah. while because they could just be at home, you know? TV's like in their house. It's really convenient. It's so true. Why would you go? It's so true. It's but also just to say, you know, talking about Crave, I did, I watched it on at home on my TV. Um, and, it's, and it's a play that I know, but I think what mm. was, I wasn't prepared for when I watched your production of it was... Um, how relevant it was to the experience that I think everyone across the country was having. It felt so bold in terms of what you chose to do with it and what you chose, how you chose to present it. And the design and the scale of projection and, mm. and sort of um, live streaming of projection as well just felt really, felt really new as a piece of work. I mean, it, asked, it felt like it asked a lot of everyone. How was that for you and how did you navigate that? Yeah, how indeed. I mean, one of the sort of like it's an important background on Crave is that we were it was it was it already been programmed in that slot about a year before. And so when we'd started working on it, we hadn't got very far. Um we sort of like we'd done a bit of work on it. Alex Loud had designed it and he's designed a few things that I've done. Um we hadn't got very far, but we talked a lot about resistance. The kind of re- this this is a thought I had a lot when I was a teenager and then it kind of felt like it was bubbling up again working on Crave and then it really bubbled up I think during the pandemic which was this idea that like you just don't like you don't consent to be born <laughs> you just some people just have you and just pop you down on this earth and then you just have to live for like decades <laughs> like whether you like it or not and, if, like, and that just feels like you know the more you think about it, the more absurd it <laughs> feels it's like I don't sign up for this like why do I have to like I shouldn't have to do anything. I shouldn't have to work. Like, that's crazy. Like, how am I going to just be put on this earth and now I have to get up at a certain time every day and make money to keep living, which I did not consent to do in the first place until I die. And the success is if I do this for longer than other people. Like, that feels like such a nonsense situation. So we were talking about the kind of like futility of life. And I was reminded of thinking about that a lot as a teenager. And I've got all my teenage diaries, which I kept very religiously and I read them and they were very embarrassing, but it was quite useful. Then Crave got cancelled and and so did everything in the pandemic. And Chichester actually did quite a bold move. They just took their whole year out straight away in March. They were like, it's gone. We're not doing any of it. We'll see you in 2021. (laughs) (laughs) And so it started from this very practical, quite pragmatic place. And also quite fresh because we hadn't thought about it for months because we weren't going to do it. And then suddenly it was happening quite quickly. Then we were in rehearsals. And I think for me, it felt like it was really weird conditions. It was like, um, it was like socially distanced. We all had our own little kind of school desks and we had to sit on our school desks and not really move from them. And everyone had to wear masks all the time. You could only take masks off if you were acting a scene from the play. So if you're doing an exercise or whatever, you had to have your mask on. Um, 
the actors were all kind of living in these little houses and they weren't really, we weren't really allowed to go anywhere apart from the show. Chichester have got like a house that they put all the creatives in. So we were like, it was me and the movement director um, and the sound designer and then eventually the designer as well just living in this house um, and going back and forth. And it, got, it became kind of very kind of ritualistic and very, and every line in Crave means like three different things. And every line in Crave is directed at like eight different people at once and you have to decide or not decide who those are. The cast were really brilliant. That was partly it though. We just had a really exceptional cast. Mm. One thing I did that I've never done before and that I would quite like to do again, this was Jenny Ogilvie's idea. Jenny was the movement director. She's brilliant. Was that we just learnt it in the room. We, they learnt it in the room. So we just came in and we do line runs and we'd be like, today we're going to learn four pages. We like worked out how many pages we need to learn a day in order to be able to do a run at the end of week two or stagger it in week two. It was only three weeks rehearsal. And we would come in and we would add on a little bit more of the language and they would run it a couple of times and we would give them stupid conditions to run it. Well, I do it again. And this time just talk to someone you don't think it's to. Okay. I do it again. However you want, go anywhere in the room. Okay. I do it again, but this time just stay on your track. Okay. I do it again and do it in American accent. Okay. I do it or whatever. And we just do it over and over again. Until we got it. And then we'd add it onto the stuff we learned before. And then they'd run all the stuff they learned before. And we do that every day. And then we'd sit down over the bit. We just learn. We'd talk about it a bit and go, who do you think that's to? What do you think that could mean? Mm. Okay. Let's do it on his feet. And then we just do it. <laughs> and it felt, and if, in some ways it felt so methodical and it, it, it felt like I spent so little time doing the stuff I would normally do with like characters and history and improvisations and, you know, cause mm-hmm. what are you, you just make it up. You should be making it up on that show. Like none of it's there. That's the point. There's no point being like, oh, we're going to solve Cray. There's nothing to solve. So actually it just became about, let's just get as much of this text into our bodies and know it so well yeah. that we can just keep doing it over and over again until almost like a weird kind of like, sort of therapy experiment where you're just going to say the same word over and over again until you realize it's connected to how you feel about your father or whatever, right? Like we're just going to, we're just going to keep doing it until something comes up. And then the only thing that Mm. stayed from the original design was that notion of resistance. I mean, it sounds really glib, but we just, we just needed a physical thing to make them feel like they were working against something and they couldn't touch each other. Um, So we put them on treadmills, (laughs) which just meant they always were working against them. They were always pushing against the tide. And then you've always got that thing of gosh, isn't life ridiculous that you just have to keep going, keep going. It's not going to stop. And the treadmills run the whole time. They get faster and slower as over the course, but they never stop moving. So the actors are always slightly aware of that. And then we knew it was going to be live streamed. That was the other thing. It's, it's, I'm making it sound really glib. I, I realise there's probably a classy, more artsy way of talking about this show, but actually a lot of it just was born out of necessity. It was, it was going to be live streamed. It was going to be, it was always the case. Again, it just comes back to the audience. We were like, we're just, we're just going to do whatever we can to make that, to get everyone to gather together and wail the sort of hellscape of the year we've had we haven't been able to gather together and wail and, and people might find it cathartic but that's actually not what it's for it was it was yeah, just to be like yeah. I see you <laughs> you know like for better or worse it was to look at somebody and be like yeah, yeah. me as well yeah there's shit in it so obviously the pandemic was a huge barrier for most people creatively um, have you experienced any other major barriers in uh, your work or just in the industry itself? Yeah, I think there are lots. Um, depends actually. I think at different stages of my career, I felt different barriers more acutely. I think when I was very, very first starting out, I went to uni first and then I went to drama school and did directing in drama school. And like money was a big barrier. <laughs> just like first of all, just like just very practically. Um, I had to work a lot in a way that some of my I hear that. like yeah, yeah. didn't have to work alongside do you know what I mean like it sounds really boring but it, it made it makes a really big difference actually just in terms of like how knackered you are or aren't um and how much time you have to like 
give to any creative pursuit if you've also got a work at Lush and then be an usher at the National Theatre to give an example of my life at that time yeah. or whatever. And I, and I also think on the other hand, I was very lucky. I had a huge amount of privilege, namely in the fact that I'm from London. So I just live with my mum for like <laughs> longer than is entirely civilised. Right? Like, I, just, I just lived at home for a really long time and I had, I'm lucky enough to have been born in a capital city and have my mum's in a nice council house that mm-hmm. is the rent is low on because it's council house and I have a relationship with my mum that meant I could live at home which is a lot more than most people have there was some fight there were lots of kind of like financial barriers and just sort of a, a sense that I was going to be navigating a world where a lot of my peers were going to have like freedoms that I didn't have time that I didn't have which sucked but I also think that I got really lucky it's not like, you know, I've been, I'm, 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 I'm doing it. So it's not like, that's why I'm not a director. Like I, I did it. Um, and that's partly through hard work and determination, yeah. but mostly luck and compassion of other people, I think, and understanding. But I, I think it's also about the right person seeing you work hard as well. Like the person who can give you that opportunity, seeing what you're doing. Yeah. And, and it, just to say like, say I also did university and then did uh, MA in directing and say so I did it that way around and also don't come from you know the privilege that you speak about in terms of like um other peers let's just say that I yeah. always bow down to anyone who hasn't had the privilege that others have in this industry that are still making work because so many people said to me directing is a rich man's game and literally rich and man being the key words mm. in that sentence yeah. and it's so whenever I encounter individuals who don't um, subscribe to either of those labels it's really you know it's it's harder but it doesn't mean that it should stop people yeah I mean I remember I remember when I was at drum school and I would yeah. look at you know the JMK award that directing award and at the point at which I was at drum school there were two people who'd ever won it who hadn't been to Oxford or Cambridge and I remember just thinking oh no <laughs> like, like yeah. oh I didn't know I was supposed to do that <laughs> like it's all like I, me- I remember having this like really distinct, and maybe I was at uni actually having this really distinct feeling like it's already too late <laughs> I'm like 21 years old and I've already I'm already not going to be able to make it because it was like there were like 10 people and it was like Joe Hill Gibbons and one other person hadn't been to Oxford or Cambridge and everybody else mm-hmm. everyone who'd ever won it it's not the case now thankfully but it was it was kind of nuts to look at it and be like oh wow no you really <laughs> They're really being specific about who gets to do this job, which felt kind of nuts to me. I mean, I think actually, weirdly, it's something that I've started to worry about a bit more again now. I'm like, I'm 35 now. That's a proper grown up, like actual grown up person. And I suddenly am going, oh, do you know, actually, like, this isn't enough money. (laughs) Because there was a period where I was like, I can live on this. This is actually quite reasonable for me, a person in my late 20s or whatever. And then you go, oh, you know, like, I don't know, what if I want mm-hmm. to, like, you know, have a baby or whatever? And you start thinking about the fact that we're freelance and the fact that actually, like, if you are at the absolute top of your game as a director, the, the ceiling, you, you hit the peak that you can hit in terms of, like, the amount of work you can ever mm-hmm. be doing and how much money can ever be coming in. And then you go, okay, well, then... Where do you go? What What now? Oh God, what now? Yeah. Um, in other senses though, other barriers, I feel like, I don't know, I'm black, I'm a woman. These are things that like make your yeah. life a little harder in the world that we currently live in. I don't necessarily 
think I could stand here and say, these are specific instances where I know I've lost out on a job because of either of those things. But there is a weathering that takes place in terms of how entitled you ever feel in a room and how people ever perceive you that like just takes its toll over the course of one's life and is mirrored in the culture all over the place. In some ways, not to get so unbelievably wanky that we all just shut this podcast down right now. I think a lot of my barriers have been within myself. But I think, um, just in terms of, I feel like um, I've never been a especially front-footed or confident person. Um, and I don't necessarily mind that about myself. Um, I don't necessarily think it's a bad thing, but in this industry, it's not helpful. <laughs> but also, I, you know, what I hear in that, like, I haven't spoken to any... People of colour who are directors who feel like they are the person that walks into the room and owns the space. And I think there is something about that sense of... Interesting. Because I also would not describe myself as someone who is Mm front-footed or or pushy. And it's the thing that I constantly Mm. get told is like to show my Mm. ambition. And it's a really interesting idea when you're an individual that's just feeling privileged to be there. No, 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 no. But it's interesting, isn't it? That like there are so many people who feel like that. There's a clear correlation, isn't there, between like a set of a set of like intersections that you exist at and your lack of inclination to go into a room and be like, let me tell you what I want to do. That, that's the scariest question most of the time. It's like, oh, what do you want to do? It's like, well, you're taking me seriously, first yeah. of all. So that's mind blowing. Yeah, yeah. And then I always just I always just bottle it as well when anyone actually asks me that question, to be fair. I'm always like Yes, I wanted to do, and then every idea I've ever had just like flies away with little wings out the window and I just sit there blinking. But maybe if I had more practice, that wouldn't be the case. Who could say? (laughs) It's so lovely to see you at the OSC when I was coming up as a directing student Mm. being like, what's the OSC? Is Is it for me? Um, could I ever be in this like bastion of Shakespeare <laughs> yes. and actually just seeing you talk and be so frank and so yeah. honest about your experience and also you know being a black woman I was like okay fine maybe they aren't elitist here maybe there is mm. a an element here that means that mm. they're interested in other points of view um as it is a RSC podcast should we talk about Shakespeare um yeah. Yeah, let's go there. Let's do it. Um, Why what not? was your what was your first encounter with Shakespeare like? Uh, you know what? I was thinking about this and I think it's I was like it's it was either doing twelfth night in like year eight or year nine at school with my actually a really good English teacher called Miss Bidoff, who we all really liked. Um or it was and like these these have to have been within like a couple of months of each other, or it was watching that Basil Lerman, Romeo and Juliet which mm-hmm. remains one of like my favorite things to watch. <laughs> it's so good. I don't care. It's good. I think I'm saying that like people disagree. Everyone loves that film, don't they? Although some Shakespeare buffs like it's only got 40% of Shakespeare's text. 40% is the fact that I kept getting told when I was like, 40% is a quite film. a lot because that play is long. Yeah. <laughs> it's more than enough. Um, she says, having just done an hour long Hamlet. Um, I feel like my, my memories of it were, I quite liked the puzzle of it. I remember enjoying the like working out what a line might mean. And I had a good teacher. And I also think what I was very lucky with was with this particular teacher was that she was very, she was very happy to lean into how ridiculous Twelfth Night is, right? She just kept being like, she kept just saying stuff. I remember doing, she did Romeo and Juliet as well. And I remember her just saying stuff like, I mean, obviously the mask ball is ridiculous because it's perfectly obvious everybody is. But even like just someone saying to you, 
obviously it's nuts. Just meant that my 14 year old brain could be like, oh, it's nuts. Okay, fine. Like, you know, it's sort of something about the lack of reverence that she had for the text beyond that she thought it was kind of fun meant that I sort of felt like that about it longer than I might have done. And I liked, I liked English. It was like my favorite subject. I liked the picking about in the words. I liked going, oh, that's because like maiden heads <laughs> means their virginity. Like I liked that stuff. So like, I'm like, oh, I'm so clever. Um, so actually like it, it wasn't a negative um, mm. introduction to Shakespeare in the way that I think it is for a lot of people. But I think that was partly because it, it happened to tap into the part of my brain that liked solving little puzzles. Mm. That said, the first time I saw Shakespeare, I thought it was really boring. <laughs> like, we, went and saw, we went and saw a production of Mamelet. I don't, I, don't, I don't know where it was. I just thought it was really dull and boring. And the fun of sitting down with the text and being like, oh, that word cool. So, I mean, that is gone because they're just saying words at you. And everyone was very serious. Mm-hmm. And everyone was taking it very seriously. Um, and people were laughing at jokes that were, frank, just palpably not funny. And I remember just finding it just really... Mm alienating I talked to a lot of my peers and they talk about feeling like they they never felt like theatre was for them or something they could access and I I never really felt like that mostly I think because I was sort of so socially oblivious to kind of any nuance at all because I was just sort of (laughs) completely away with the fairies all the time that I actually managed to miss a lot of like early microaggression just because I wasn't paying any attention so I actually just sort of was like whatever this is it I'll go people do that um thought it was kind of novel and fun I just thought it was stupid (laughs) I I wish I could say something more classy but it it wasn't that it hurt me or alienated me or that I felt I could never go back or that I realized that and I turned my back on Shakespeare first time I just thought it was boring and stupid and people were laughing for no reason and why would I watch this when I could watch something else but that's so funny as well because, like, Hamlet was what you assisted on at the one of the shows. You yeah, I've done so many yeah. Hamlets, man. And I and I was working at the National when it was on with Rory Kinnear in it, and I ushered it like forty times. I've seen Hamlet more than any other play. And it's the longest play as well. It's so long. <laughs> it's so long. It's long. Yeah, it's real long. It's my main, the main adjective I would use to describe Hamlet. Although your version, an hour, I was really impressed. An hour and five, to be fair. So, you know. Okay, but you just told, <laughs> tell the children, it's just an hour. Just an hour of your It's life. just an hour. Yeah. And then it's really funny because we do these Q&As after every show and, and sometimes, you know, the actors will be in discussion and we tell the kids that like, you know, if you do the whole of Hamlet, it's four hours. And they would just be like, well, what else would be in it? <laughs> so you were just like, maybe the rest of it truly is waffle. That's not a good thing to say, is it on an RSC podcast? Well, it's about sort of how, because every Shakespeare is edited, every every Shakespeare has a element of um, yeah. tweaking by the director or the dramaturg. There's never really a, a final version. So I think, and you have to, because they're 400 years old. The audience is not the same. Yeah. We've got no attention span, frankly. <laughs> I think it's really important for, for directors who are directing Shakespeare that, you can talk about the fact that it's boring and you can say that out loud and and you mm. shouldn't be punished for it either because I, yes to hear it if you don't have a relationship to Shakespeare is really hard but actually the stories for me there's something about them that which is why they still exist right I think so and I think there's something in them that's like if you can kind of cut them down to like the thing that matters to you as the director or if you can like drill into them and go like, it's, it's the thing we talk about at the top of this chat, right? It's the, like, what is it for? Who's it for? Who's going to see it? Why would you do it? Why? Why would you do it? And if you can answer that question clearly, even if the answer is just 
because it's great and people will have a great time and people deserve to have a great time damn it like even if that's it as long as you can really really acknowledge what it is and why you're doing it and get to the bottom of why this is the play that can actually do that then then of course they're great so i have mentioned it a few times about your time at the rsc um what were your defining moments with the rsc and any have you got any memories of your time here yeah, I mean, I had, a, I had a great time at the RSC. I feel like part of the reason I really wanted to do it was because of the stuff we were talking about earlier, which is that I was sort of like, I don't really like Shakespeare. And I'd been at drama school and not really especially enjoyed it. And I was around people who were really passionate about it. But it just struck me as like, why would you mm-hmm. when you could just watch something new? <laughs> that could just do you know and we talk a lot about like well you know this time we're going to take this production of Othello or whatever and we're going to flip it around so that it's about attacking racism and then there won't be any racism anymore or whatever and you'd sort of be sat there being like okay but like it hasn't worked before I don't see why this particular director would suddenly be able to solve this issue with this play and also why would you just write a new play that does the thing you actually want to do rather than try and manipulate the Shakespeare play into doing something that it doesn't actually do really realistically because it's 400 years old um (laughs) so it's quite grumpy about Shakespeare um and then I like came to the RSC and it was just, I think the, the main thing was it was really cool to like Im- do like a weird sort of immersion of mm-hmm. just being around people who just love it. <laughs> like really love it, really love the language. And it was really fun to be on the inside of that. I still have reservations, I think, about whether or not, I mean, I liked it because I had, I had, I had the inside scoop, mm-hmm. right? I enjoyed the puzzles once I'd learned them. But I don't know what that means for people who haven't had the inside scoop, which is the vast yeah. majority of people in the world um so i think i'm still holding it a little at arm's length but i'm working it out working out why it's good and when it's good and when it's not good um but i think for me being at the rsc the things that were really exciting was being around people who love it mm-hmm. just being getting to hang out with like the voice department who just know stuff how do they know all that stuff know what a spondy is what um because it just felt exciting and useful. And I think it gave me a lot of tools of how to talk about language beyond Shakespeare, right? Then, then going back into other language and hearing rhythm new, newly and hearing pace and thinking about antithesis and thinking like all that stuff. And, you know, and I loved doing, I did, I loved doing the understudy run. I did the, the understudy run of Hamlet and just being like, this is really cool. I'm like getting to do like a weird avatar version of what it would be like to direct a main house show. And direct an actor through a three and a half hour production of Hamlet and dig into it with this person. Um, just felt really exciting. Felt really exciting to be able to work with people and work with people who were really pumped and excited to get to do this thing that they potentially get to do once. It had this kind of magic about it. But yeah, I remember just finding that really, it kind of crystallized, I think for me a little bit about what it is about the work that is really exciting or could be exciting or would be exciting to me. Um, and how I was going to navigate Shakespeare if I was ever going to do it, which I then didn't until really recently. But I think I was very, it made me very clear as to why I, why I, Tilly, would, would do it. What, what would be the reason that I would be the director? So I think I'm still quite like, mm. mm-hmm. there are Shakespeare plays I'm kind of interested in, I think. But I also think the thing that I find really hard is the notion that you might, you might have to take a play and take All's Well That Ends Well or whatever. And you're going to do it at the RSC where invariably you're going to be doing it for a lot of people who've seen it before, which is already like completely remodels what that experience is. 
because it's not like doing Hamlet for nine-year-olds where none of them have seen it. So when Gertrude mm. drinks the drink, they all gasp yeah. because they have no idea that's what's going to happen, right? And then, which is so good. And then you're like, that's probably what it's supposed to feel yeah. like, right? It's really weird seeing Hamlet more than once. Like, go and watch a Hamlet when you've seen it four other times. No one gasps. And then what's the point? Like, they know who's going to, they know what happens at the end of the duel. Mad. Like, it, you suddenly watch it with people who have no idea what's going to happen. It changes everything. So it made me think a lot about, like, why you would do it, who you would do it for. If you're going to do also whether it ends well or Twelfth Night or whatever for 500 people who've seen it six times before and are kind of watching it in relation to other productions. And there's this weird assumption that as directors, we've got to come up with this one amazing thing that no one's ever discovered about the play before in 400 years and reveal it to an audience. And that's your in. And that feels kind of impossible to me. But what it did make me think about was like, is this, is this a story that you give a shit about? And if it is, then you should do it. And if it isn't, you shouldn't. It kind of doesn't matter if it's Shakespeare or not. Ladies and gentlemen, please take your seats. The performance is about to continue. The interval bell has rang. Oh, no. So we've got time for one more question. Who, real or fictional, would you like your next interval drinks to be with and why? I am going to say Bell Hooks because I think... I come back to her a lot. Mm -hmm. Um, May she rest in peace. And I feel like she has shaped the why I make the work thing maybe more than a lot of other authors and actually probably more than a lot of theatre artists which is weird um she turns up in my life a lot my best mate read a load of bell hooks at my wedding do you know what I mean bit wanky like going for that but I think if I was like at the interval and we were trying to talk about the piece of work we'd just seen I feel like she would be able to dissect it on a human level that would make me excited about the work regardless whether I liked it or not like if I was loving the show she would make me feel really like, and that's why I love it. Thank you for distilling that. And if I didn't love the show, she'd be like, mm, well, the function of art is da 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 And I'm like, aha, well, then I'm getting something out of this anyway. And it would just have been cool to hang out with her, wouldn't it? Her or like, I don't know, Shangela, someone who's just going to be like, it doesn't matter. She'd be just, someone who's going to, her, or yeah, someone who's going to like, if you're not enjoying the play, is just going to be like, she'll just go. <laughs> like, the person, that, that friend who just, who can just say like, well, then let's just, why are we going to watch the second half then? Let's just go. Let's just go. That person. <laughs> Thank you so much, Tinika. It's been so lovely. It's been so lovely to just hear your thoughts and hear your brain work because, yeah, you you know, you're someone, as I said, I've been aware of for a long time and it's nice to finally get an opportunity to sit down with you and have a chat. It's lovely to chat to you. It's wicked. We should do it again. Yes, please. Join us next week when RSC actor Tom Petty asks fellow actor and director Prasanna Puwanaraja what his interval drink of choice is. Remember, search RSC Interval Drinks to listen to more episodes, including Series 1 of Interval Drinks. Interval Drinks